you'll see we are still on our culture of discipleship. And uh, we, we, this series has been going on for some weeks now. I think this is the ninth preach in the series, although it's probably slightly longer than nine weeks with slight interruptions in between. Uh, and we've looked at various aspects of kingdom life from the book of Matthew. And today is the second of two weeks based around the chapters 18 to 22 in Matthew, looking at kingdom community. And last week, Tim spoke, I think, brilliantly about how it takes a church to make a disciple. Uh, And when he and I were talking recently about what he was going to cover and what I would cover, he mentioned that he'd noticed there were lots and lots of questions asked in those five chapters of Matthew. And so I had a look at it, and there are what I would call genuine questions from the disciples and from others. Uh, And there are several questions that are um, there to challenge Jesus. And there are others that are phrased to test him. And I thought it would be helpful for us to look at some of those genuine questions. Not that we can't learn from those designed to test or challenge, but there were just too many to address in one morning. So we're going to look at who is the greatest, how often must I forgive my brother, what good things shall I do to inherit eternal life, and what then will there be for us? So, who is the greatest? And if you've got your finger in so around chapter 18, chapter 19 of Matthew, if you've got your Bibles with you, that's roughly where I'll be, I'll be speaking from. And if you happen to look over the previous chapters of Matthew, you'll see that Peter appears quite prominently. He walked on the water. Uh, he asked Jesus to explain a parable. He confessed Jesus as the Messiah. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, in response, Jesus blessed him and said, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. He rebuked Jesus. He experienced the transfiguration. And Jesus asked him about the poll tax and sent him off to catch a fish in which was money to pay the taxes. Knowing the disciples' propensity to squabble and promote themselves, it's not entirely surprising that they then come to Jesus and say, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Perhaps they were jealous of Peter's close involvement with Jesus. Or maybe they they genuinely expected Jesus to say, well, Peter is the greatest. I doubt they expected the response that Jesus gave. So if you've got your Bibles, Matthew 18, verse 2. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There are two aspects to Jesus' response. First, you have to be in it to win it. You have to be in the kingdom of heaven to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not, you know, it's fairly straightforward. 
And the word here, uh, converted, means to turn or to convert by changing. And it's, it's usually, it's just a straightforward word graphically illustrating dynamic change. So this isn't a turn that's just, you know, easing off in a slightly shallow direction. This is a dynamic change, a complete turnaround. Certainly, it would have been a dynamic change for these grown men to become like little children. Their reaction may have been similar to that of Nicodemus in John 3 when Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? If they cannot literally become children, what was it about children that Jesus wanted them to identify with? There are probably many aspects that we could choose, but for me, dependence is the most obvious. Children are dependent, not by choice, but by design. They need love, care, a home. They need feeding, teaching, nurturing. They are dependent on their parents to provide for them. Similarly, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being dependent on God. We cannot do it ourselves. Or as Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We must be naturally born and then spiritually born. And that is an act of submission. I cannot do this on my own. I submit to King Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and then I receive an eternal lifetime visa into the kingdom of heaven. Then, once you're in, to be the greatest, you must humble yourself, which means not being arrogant or proud, and to consider yourself of less importance. The opposite of humility is pride. And that is about raising yourself up, considering yourself better than you really are. Humility is about recognizing yourself as you really are, not putting on what you're not. Determining to be a what-you-see-is-what-you-get sort of person. And that is not an excuse for being unwilling to change. It's not, that's what you get, you know, that's the way I'm, it's not, it's not what I'm talking about. And although it's always better to start with a change in attitude which leads to action, Jesus' phrasing is clearly an act of the will. Humble yourself. <laughs> it's fairly straightforward. So what are the attitudes of a child that equate to humility? Well, I'm sure there are many, and I've just picked out four. Firstly, not afraid to admit they don't know. Children ask questions. What's that for? How does that work? Why do we do that? Perhaps you think you've been a Christian long enough that you should know most things. Or maybe you're just embarrassed to ask 
What are spiritual gifts for? What does communion really mean? If God is sovereign, why is prayer so important? Or what does it mean to be a Christian? And then related to that, children are teachable. In fact, children are like sponges, soaking up information such that we're often surprised at what they come out with and not always what we want them to come out with. How teachable are you? It was great that there was a really good turnout for our discipleship tracks in February. But how much did you learn? And more importantly... Are you putting it into practice? Because that's what it means to be teachable. It's not just gaining knowledge. It's about putting it into action, putting it into practice. And then, depending on the age of the child, they're willing to be corrected without defending themselves. It always surprises me how quickly I jump to my own defense. I only did that because you... If he hadn't said, or the best one of all, it's not my fault. And I honestly put this in my notes before this morning's meeting. All right, I want you to know that. If you have a ready excuse for arriving late to our meeting, ask yourself if you miss buses or trains doctor's or dentist appointments for the same reason. Children are quick to forgive and don't hold grudges. I know that also depends on age and you might say, you come to my house. (laughs) Sometimes we're very slow to forgive. Having to work up to it as a huge challenge. But we should forgive as quickly as we say sorry for bumping into someone. It's interesting watching our grandchildren. Jedi is three, nearly three, and Zach is just one. We'll see Jedi hit Zach with a toy. Zach will cry. Claire will say, Jed, please don't hit your brother. Now say sorry to him and give him a hug. Sorry, Zach. Big hug. And Zach carries on as if nothing has happened. He is not plotting retaliation and revenge. He just gets on with it. And that is how we should be. We forgive one another. We receive forgiveness. We don't then plan, I'm going to get them back. You wait till I see you next week. No, we should be open and forgiving with one another. Pursuing these attributes and considering yourself of less importance is a short step from thinking you have no value, which is neither helpful nor true. And Jesus goes on to illustrate at considerable length how much we are valued by God. In those verses following the ones that I read, Matthew 18, 5, whoever receives one such in my name receives me. Just let that sink in. Whoever receives one of these little children, i.e. us as believers, receives me. The next verse, anyone who causes one of these to stumble, it's better for you to drown with a millstone round your neck. 
That's pretty clear, isn't it? How much, what he thinks of us. Woe to those stumbling blocks, he says in verse 7. And then in verses 12 to 14, there's the, the story of the lost sheep. Well, that's an indication of how much God values us. The shepherd goes after the one. He's interested in you. Even when you look at verses further on, 15 to 17, where we talk about church discipline, it's an indicator of how valuable the person is. Because when they sin, and there's indication of how we deal with that, it's because God wants them brought back into fellowship, into relationship. If he didn't value that person, why bother? Let them go. They made a silly mistake. Let them get on with it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, draw them back in. And then the following verses, 18 and 19, it talks about break, uh, binding and loosing. That's the power that God gives to us. He wouldn't, if he didn't value us, give us that level of power. And then verse 20 sums it all up. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you. He gives us his presence, how much he values us. It's not impossible that as we act humbly and serve faithfully, it feels like we've become part of the furniture and are taken for granted and can feel of no value. It's important that we remember how much the Father values us. And then on to the next question. How often should I forgive my brother? Peter comes back into the frame. Maybe he was, you know, a bit concerned about some of the grumbling from the other disciples. I don't know. But in uh, verse 21, it says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times. Now maybe he wanted to show how humble he was. Common thinking at that time was to forgive three times if someone sinned against you. Peter thinks, I'll double it, I'll add one, I'll make the perfect number and I'll earn some brownie points. I imagine Jesus' reply shocked him somewhat. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, Jesus' point was not that we should forgive 490 times, nor was it just such a large number that you couldn't keep count and were unable to keep track, meaning we should always forgive. I'm not suggesting we should ever not forgive. But again, Jesus illustrates with a story what he means and also what life is like in this kingdom that we are now part of. Have a look at verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now probably the word slave here is more likely to mean servant or those in service of the king. Probably high officials, satraps, governors, whose duty it was to collect the royal taxes from their domain. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 
10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, a talent amounted to approximately 6,000 denarii. A labourer would earn one denarius a day. So six denarii in a week. That was his week's wages. So it would take a 1,000 weeks to earn one talent. That is just under 20 years. In today's economy, with the national minimum wage at £7.50, you would earn £60 a day. So one talent would be worth about £360,000. 10,000 would be £3.6 billion. I'll just let that settle. But since he did not have the means to repay, not great surprise, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Oh, sure. (laughs) It's not a chance. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Can you believe that? But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about £6,000 today's money. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Slightly counterproductive, isn't it? Because he's not going to be able to earn very much in prison. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? in the same way that I had mercy on you. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus finishes by saying, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The amount of money that the servant owed was preposterous. It's beyond imagining that anyone could owe that much. And equally preposterous, that he should be forgiven the debt completely. So what is Jesus' point? We need to look at the opening phrase. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. When we enter the kingdom of heaven, we are born again. We are forgiven a preposterous debt one that we were utterly incapable of repaying on our own. Our sins are forgiven. And we are once again in right standing with the king. Yes, we should forgive freely and without limit. But the reason we can and should do this is because we have been forgiven a debt far greater than any debt we could ever be owed. Peter's question 
demonstrated that he had not listened or had forgotten or at least had not understood when the disciples asked Jesus back in Matthew 6 to teach them to pray. Remember one of the phrases? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Our feet may be firmly planted in this secular world in which we live, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and live by a different set of values, not just a different set of rules imposed upon us, but actions that reflect what has happened, a change on the inside. Hence, Jesus ends by saying, forgive your brother from your heart, not from your mouth, from your heart. Because if you forgive from your heart, then true forgiveness comes out of your mouth. And then to our third question. What good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? Turn over the page. Well, you don't have to me not have to turn over the page to go to Matthew 19, verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You should not commit murder. I nearly got that wrong. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete or perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owed, owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We know from this account that this young man, this was a young man and that he was wealthy. From the accounts in Mark and in Luke, we also know that he ran to Jesus. He knelt down to ask his question. And he was a ruler or a prominent person. So despite his wealth and position... He recognises he is in need. Or at least he wants, to, he wants clarity and confirmation that he is living appropriately. It shows integrity and uh, an almost righteous approach. And certainly he understands enough about authority that he submits to Jesus by kneeling and acknowledging him as a teacher. This is an interesting exchange and one that once again demonstrates how Jesus relies on the Holy Spirit to give him wisdom and knowledge to be able to respond in such a way that draws out the key issues. 
So he doesn't cut the conversation at the outset by saying, you can't obtain eternal life by doing good things. You must follow me. That will come later. He develops the conversation using the theme. If you want to do good things, then keep the commandments. Then it gets really interesting. From his response, it's clear this young man was hoping for something other than keep the commandments. It starts to uncover his true motive. Give me something to do that guarantees me eternal life. Maybe it's come up on his to-do list and he wants to tick it off and move on to other things. Perhaps he was thinking he would just have to make a sizable donation to the new synagogue. But he goes along with Jesus. All right, which ones? Jesus replies with a mixture of tangible and intangible. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You either have or you haven't. But then, honour your parents, love your neighbour. These are a bit more difficult to quantify. But the young man doesn't miss a beat and comes up with one of the most outrageous comments in the whole of the New Testament. All these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? (laughs) With arrogance dripping off every word, he reveals something of his character. He's impatient. He doesn't have the time for this. Give me the facts and let's move on. Perhaps he's used to commanding that sort of response from those around him, making decisions and pressing on to the next thing. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't grab him by the shirt and tell him exactly what he is lacking, because that would have been strangely satisfying. But he says what he previously said to the disciples, leave everything and follow me. For this young man, it will sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and then follow me. He heads home sad because he was rich. Jesus then utters this amazing statement that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What did he mean? Well, there were various theories about this camel and its needle. Maybe it refers to one of the gates into Jerusalem that was called the needle gate and that its size meant it was so small a camel could only enter if its loads were removed and it crawled through on its knees. This is the best picture I could get. Another was that there was a minor error in copying so that the word for rope or cable, camelos, had become the word for camel, camelos. And that it referred to an eye that a cable went through to secure a boat. There's no concrete evidence that a needle gate ever existed in Jerusalem. And why would anyone try to force a camel down onto its knees to go through a small gate when there were larger ones available? Equally, there's nothing to support the idea that Jesus was talking about a rope or a cable. And more importantly, neither fit the context. Where Jesus ends by saying, with men... It is impossible. That's the point. It can't be done. It's pure exaggeration. Just as we would say, there goes a flying pig. It's not really. 
And Jesus often spoke in this way. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And was he talking to somebody with an enormous plank? No, he wasn't. And later in Matthew, he says, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They weren't blind. They didn't strain gnats and they didn't swallow camels. It was exaggeration. But the disciples understood. And this is why they were so distraught. Then who can be saved? Jesus' reply reflects what we've already covered. You must be born again unless you become like children. It's impossible for man, but possible for God. And as disciples, we need to remind ourselves that there is no good thing that we can do which affects our salvation. But we're prone to slip into that way of thinking, especially when we're encouraged to be humble and serve one another. Even if we may not voice it out loud, inside we can so easily think, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm helping here. I'm, I'm serving there. And I turn up for that. They're all good things. But let's get our thinking straight. They make no impact on securing our place in the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter jumps in again for our final question. What then will there be for us? Maybe he was thinking, if it's impossible for men and we've left everything and followed you, what hope is there for us to receive this treasure in heaven? Whatever his motivation, Jesus answered quite clearly and touched on three areas. So Matthew 19, verse 28, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. The first part relates to the 12 disciples. So we can note it, and it adds to our knowledge of the second coming with other things we read in the Bible, but it doesn't add to our ability to answer this question for us. The second part is a promise to all who have in life chosen Jesus above family, possessions, or work. And the promise is multiply blessing in return. From the parallel passages in Mark 10 and Luke 18, we see that this is not a future heavenly reward, but a tangible promise for the here and now. God is no man's debtor. We may not immediately recognize the form it takes, but this is a promise, and his promises are secure. Our own, Liz and I, our own personal experience has been that he provides, but it's not always exactly how or when we might like or expect. When I gave up my career in accountancy and we went to Bible college, 
We hoped to benefit from some small equity in the house that we owned. But it didn't sell very quickly, and in the end, it just about cleared our debts. With barely any income, we found our bank account going down and down into darker shades of red. But at the end of each year of our three years at college, we were debt-free. And we never quite understood how it happened, but we were. And then even more inexplicable, and I really have no idea how we managed it, immediately after leaving college, we bought a house in Christchurch in Dorset. And a few years later, when we moved from there to Brighton, there was little we could afford in the area. But we struck a deal on a house. Then through a really strange set of circumstances, we bought the house but never lived in it. We converted it into flats, which gave us extra funds to buy another house, which was more suitable for us, and there was actually two flats that we had to convert back into a house to make into a family home. But that house has increased in value such that we've been able to support one of our children in buying their own property. It's become a rental property and enabled us to buy a house in Hastings when we moved there and still generates income for us, making it possible for us to live in this area in Edenbridge, which is much more expensive than Hastings. That, and at the time, it wasn't a great deal for me to give up accountancy and go to Bible college, but God multiplies the blessing. And that's just one occasion. We were singing earlier, great is your faithfulness. Through the years, you've always been there. That is our testimony. In everything, through the years, he has always been there. He has always been faithful. So the next line is secure. He will always be faithful. He always will be there. Perhaps you feel God is asking you to give up something, go somewhere, or change jobs. Be assured that any sacrifice you make for him will generate multiplied blessing. And then the third part of Jesus' response is that on top of any blessing here, we inherit eternal life. Notice the word inherit. An inheritance is not earned, but given as a gift. It's a legal agreement, and so it is the beneficiary's right, and it lasts as long as you live. And since it's eternal life, that means forever. In this community in which God has placed us, let us promote a culture of discipleship by demonstrating humility and forgiveness because God has performed the impossible in our lives and placed us in the kingdom of heaven, promised multiplied blessings for every sacrifice we make, and then eternal life with him forever. Amen.